On July 1st of 1940, a suspension bridge opened in the state of Washington that bridged the gap between Tacoma and Kitsap Peninsula. Uh, they had begun construction on the bridge in September of 1938. It took a couple years to construct. And during the construction of this bridge, it became apparent that in windy conditions, the bridge would move. And not just shake or tremor, but move quite a bit. And this movement was so evident during the construction, it received the nickname Gallopin' Gertie by the construction workers. Now, I, I'd submit to you that that is a, you do not want your bridge to have the nickname Gallopin' Gertie. The bridge continued to gallop, uh, to move and sway in the wind after it was open to the public. And even with some measures that were taken to attempting to fix the problem. Uh, and on November 7th of 1940, so only five months after it was open to the public, there were some sustained winds that reached about 40 miles per hour that forced the bridge to move and sway in such an extreme degree that the bridge tore apart and collapsed into the river below, in the water below. There is video footage of this, it is wild. Um, fascinating and terrifying at, at the same time. Uh, the, the issue with the Tacoma Bridge, and because of its failure, it, it's been studied by engineers um, to understand what exactly happened. The issue with the bridge was in the construction. The, the foundational engineering concept was flawed. Uh, and so with gusts of, again, 40 miles per hour, which is kind of fast, but it's not really that fast. It, it, this massive structure that was created with all sorts of really strong material, steel, concrete, was ripped apart by some wind. It was unable to stand firm, and it collapsed into the water below. This morning, we're going to look at the beginning of Philippians chapter 4. And we are going to see a call to stand firm. And so we must answer two questions. What is it to stand firm in the Lord? And what does standing firm in the Lord result in for our life? Um, earlier this week I had outlined this passage and I thought that I would get through verse 5, but we're only going to get through verse 3. Uh, this morning. That's just how it goes sometimes. So if you haven't yet turned to Philippians, turn to Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to start reading in verse 17, and we'll read through chapter 4, verse 3. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, 
my joy and crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Lord, I ask that as we look at your word this morning, that you would open our eyes and open our ears, that we would have soft and tender hearts to your word, that you would convict us and change us to be more like you. Amen. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. Paul loves this church. He views them as his family. You can see how much he desires to be with them. Paul's affection for the church has been evident uh, throughout this letter. He's not someone who backs away from expressing his emotion and his care for the church. And, And I pray that we would be a church that build that kind of relationship with each other, that we would see each other and long to be with one another, that we would see each other as family, um, excited to spend time and, and serve each other and worship the Lord together. It's a sweet uh, picture of loving, gracious, healthy relationships within the church. And Paul views the church as his joy and crown because of their work in the gospel together. And because of his great love for the church, He also desires that they would stand firm in the Lord. Paul's love for the church moves him to point them towards Christ. And this is what godly love does. Paul is not looking at the church as a means to get what he wants out of them. His desire is that the church would stand firm in the Lord. And so a godly love will point people towards Jesus. That is because a godly love is concerned about the things of the Lord. The interests of Christ are of the highest value. Our relationship with the Lord is the highest importance. And a godly love understands this and encourages people to then stand firm in the Lord. So stand firm in the Lord. And let's begin answering this first question. What is it to stand firm in the Lord? What is it that that Paul is calling the Philippian church to? So I'm going to boil this this answer of the first question to two main answers. So first, to stand firm in the Lord is to hold to correct doctrine. And secondly, standing firm in the Lord is to have correct doctrine move you toward correct living. So believing correct theology that results in holy living. This is what it means to stand firm in the Lord. So let's look at the first one. Stand firm in the Lord by holding to correct doctrine. A major theme that Paul emphasizes in this letter to the Philippians is that righteousness is in Christ alone. That we aren't able to bring any of our own self-righteousness to the table that is acceptable to God. The beginning of the letter starts out like this in chapter 1, verse 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So it is God who began the work. We, we do not begin the work. We do not help the Lord to save us. We do not add any righteousness of our life to the work of salvation. It is God who saves us. It is God who provides us with the righteousness of Christ. And that is a righteousness that is outside of ourselves so that we have no ability to boast in it. 
but it leads us to humbly worship God and, and thankfulness for his rich grace and mercy and his character and that he is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, that he relents from disaster. He is mighty to save even sinners as rebellious as, as you and I. Praise God that he, he does it all for us. The danger is that we would fall away from the truth that righteousness is found in Christ alone. And so we must keep watch and look out for the dogs, the mutilators of the flesh, as we saw in chapter 3. Those leaders who teach that there can be confidence in the flesh. They teach that righteousness can be attained by someone other than Christ, namely themselves, supposedly by their holy living. Paul responds to this by saying, in chapter 3, verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ." the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So standing firm means that we'll be grounded in the truth of the gospel, that the wind and the waves of incorrect doctrine that ebb and flow like a tide in the thought and the world and the culture will not have a destructive effect on our lives and our beliefs. The Tacoma Bridge was made up of strong material. It looked like it was going to be good on paper, but it was destroyed by a little wind. It was, in a sense, deceived. Do not be deceived by the world. Hold fast to the truth of God's word. A few questions to consider here. What do you really believe? What are you grounded in? What is it that you're building your life on and holding fast to? I'd urge you to be grounded in the gospel. In the gospel, uh, there's forgiveness of sins and salvation. Um, and that you would not be taken captive by the philosophies of the world that only end in destruction. Be grounded in the gospel so that you're not tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine that the world has to offer you. And they have a lot to offer. The second answer to this question about standing firm is this. Stand firm in the Lord by having correct doctrine move you toward correct living. It's one thing to say that you believe something, but living according to what you believe is the fruit of that belief. This is the picture of maturity, the the progressive sanctification of someone's character. As we grow in our relationship with the Lord, as we grow in our love for him, as we grow in our knowledge of him, this relationship with Christ will move us to live then in a way that honors him. This is what God has predestined his children to become, conformed more and more into the image of Christ, living lives of humility and service as as we honor the Lord and worship God. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So in growing in godliness, our minds are to be renewed by the truth that then leads us to live in a way that Christ did. 
And this will be unifying in the church as those who are like-minded in their love for the Lord will have the same values uh, and the same gospel that we believe uh, because of Christ. So correct doctrine is to move us towards correct living. This brings unity to the church. Uh, there are many practical ways that correct doctrine that leads to correct living impacts our daily life because when you believe the gospel, it, it takes root and changes your whole life. Paul, after calling the church to stand firm, he addresses a few things uh, within the church that need attention. And so what does this standing firm in the faith result in? And we're only going to look at one of them today, but it's an important one. And so standing firm in the Lord leads to unity through the gospel. Standing firm in the Lord leads to unity through the gospel. Look at verse 2 of chapter 4. I entreat Eudia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Well, looks like there's a conflict here. Uh, we have two women who have some sort of disagreement and apparently, this disagreement is large enough to be addressed in this letter uh, to the Philippian church. Uh, Paul, who is in prison at this time, has heard about it. This disagreement has traveled quite a ways. People are talking. Uh, one commentator says this about quarrels in the church. While the church has to work very dil- diligently to publicize the gospel, a church quarrel always publicizes itself. It has winged feet. Let there be a quarrel one evening in a church business meeting, and it will be the talk of the coffee shops the next morning. Quarrels spread. Um, We aren't given any details of the nature of this disagreement. We don't know what it's about. Um, We just know that there is a need for agreement in the Lord. So as we're standing firm in the Lord, we should grow more and more to love what God loves and hate what God hates. And this should then move to a unity in the same mindedness in the church. Being of the same mind is something that Paul has urged the Philippian church to do. Chapter 2, verse 2 says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And chapter 2, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Okay, so what about conflict? How did this happen? And what is the solution here? Well, again, we don't know the details of this particular conflict, but there is another conflict between people in church that we do know more about um, that can be helpful for us to consider as we think about conflict. So after Paul was converted... The other disciples were afraid of him, for good reason. He was going around persecuting the church. They had good reason to be afraid of him. But Barnabas took Paul to the other disciples and vouched for him. Paul and Barnabas had traveled a lot together. They they preached the gospel together. They dealt with a magician, a false prophet in, in Cyprus. They went to Antioch together and preached. And many believed the gospel 
They endured persecution. They were driven out of places. They went to Iconium, and many Jews and Gentiles believed in Iconium. They went to Lystra together, where Paul healed a man, and people started calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because they thought that they were gods. And they had to tell them they were not and to worship the true God. They endured hardship in Lystra as well as, as Paul was stoned and dra- he was stoned and dragged out of the city, left for dead, uh, but he survived. And Paul and Barnas, Barnabas also went together to the Jerusalem council to help with the question about do people need to be circumcised in order to be saved? These two men had a close relationship with each other. They went through a lot together. Going all over preaching the gospel, experiencing hardships with each other. Is there anything that could come between them? The answer is yes, there, there was. In Acts chapter 15, verse 36, we read this. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So Paul has this idea, and it's a great idea. Hey, let's go back to the places that we preached and check on how the people are doing. Great idea. And Barnabas then adds to this idea wants to take Mark along. Uh, Paul doesn't like that idea because apparently Mark had sort of abandoned them. He had had left them uh, in the work. He didn't go with them. So Barnabas wants to take Mark. Uh, Paul does not want to take Mark. And this results in a sharp disagreement. This word is for sharp. Uh, This word is only used in in one other place. It's the same word that's used in Hebrews 10.24 where we are to stir each other up to love and good works. That's a more positive sense of the usage of of that word. And and here it brings about a separation. Something interesting here, looking at this argument, we're not told who's right. Did you notice that? (laughs) We're not told who's right. It's a straightforward recording of what the issue was that there was a disagreement, there was a parting of ways. We don't get to see what the verdict was, who was right and wrong. That's the sort of thing that I want to know. (laughs) Um, It's tough. I I can sympathize with both positions. Barnabas, being an encouraging and gracious man, desires to give a guy another chance and slowly work with Mark, bring him along. Paul is more straightforward and sees that He left them and wasn't a part of the ministry, and maybe he should do something else uh, rather than go on the trip. There's these two positions. Ultimately, this brings about a separation. Part of the reason why we do not get an answer here about who is right and wrong is because that's not actually what's important here. What we do see is that God continues to work in spite of us. (laughs) 
they go their separate ways, God continues to work. Uh, later on, we discover that there is there's some sort of reconciliation between Paul uh, and Barnabas and, and, and Mark. And In 2 Timothy 4, verse 11, he writes, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. So it looks like... A, as time progressed, that both Mark and Paul have grown in their love for the Lord and ultimately for each other, uh, even as there had been this sharp disagreement in the past that revolved around Mark. Now look back at Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. So Paul addresses this disagreement as it is possible it could have a negative impact on the church. When there is strife between members of the church, There is danger that this conflict would spread between people and taken sides and divisions form. We're not called to divisions, but to unity. We're to be of the same mind, the same mission. Division within the church destroys the ability of the church to function the way that God has called us to function. And Paul decides to address the situation. In addressing whatever is happening here between these two women, uh, Paul speaks to them in the same way. He says, I entreat Eudia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So he purposefully entreats to both of them. Uh, He's being very tactful. He's not singling one out over the other. And what do we see Paul appealing to in order for there to be a solution to the conflict? Agree in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. So what does it mean to agree in the Lord? To agree in the Lord is to have agreement about what is important in life. So agreement about the gospel, that that Jesus died on the cross for sinners, rose again from the grave so that those who repent and believe can have their sins forgiven, the righteous life of Christ applied and added to them, and spend eternity with the Lord. So first there must be agreement about the gospel. And secondly, There is agreement about the purpose of life. That we exist to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That we may glorify God. The way that we glorify God is by listening to and obeying His commands. And so conflict and ultimately divisiveness, divisive behavior comes into a relationship when something else enters into that equation that is then most important in life or is the purpose of life. That's the anatomy of a conflict. When there is a certain value or purpose for life that someone has and it's not being met to a certain expectation, there's going to be conflict. Another reason that there may be conflict, there may be agreement about the gospel and even the purpose of life but then there is a disagreement about how to best proper function uh, with those values and with the purpose of life. And so then there's con- that, that's what we see with Paul and Barnabas. They agreed about the gospel. They agreed about the purpose of life, but they had different opinions about what decisions to make um, when it comes to living out the values of the gospel. Conflict. Conflict is not always wrong. It can be uncomfortable. 
But that's part of how we mature in Christ and grow in Christ-likeness. For example, we will always be in conflict with the world around us about the gospel and about the purpose of life. This will always be a conflict. Unless the Lord opens the eyes of the lost, we will not agree with them about what life is about and how life is to be lived. We just won't. They need to be saved. We live and breathe to worship God. Our desire is to follow his word and follow how he has created life to function. And those who are lost are rebelling against the purpose of life and are rebelling against how, how God created life to work. So there will be conflict here between the light and the darkness. The way we combat this conflict is by preaching the gospel and by living a godly life. Standing firm in correct doctrine and having that doctrine shape how we live. So speaking the truth about Jesus to those around us and living out a faithful life honoring the Lord. Being faithfully obedient in the ordinary things of life, regularly being involved in church, pointing our friends and family towards Christ as we have relationship with them, raising our children to know the truth, working as if we are working for the Lord and not for man. These ordinary things of life. The other type of conflict is between people and the church, uh, which is what we are seeing here with Paul and Barnabas and Judea and Syntyche. So what are we to do when there is a conflict between two Christians? Appeal to the highest value in the purpose of life. Appeal to the highest value in the purpose of life. Look again, read this again, verse 2 and 3. I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. The appeal is to agree in the Lord. They've labored side by side with Paul in the gospel together. Their names are written in the book of life. This is where we go to with Christians with a dispute. Do you remember the Lord? Do you remember what Christ has done for you on the cross? Do you remember the work of the gospel? Remember that you have salvation because of the work of Christ. Let's keep what is most important on the forefront of our minds. What this will hopefully do as the Spirit is working within them, if they are saved, will be to soften the hearts of the Christians as they turn back from whatever it is that they're desiring at such a high degree and come back to the main thing, which is the gospel, the purpose of life that God has provided us with. Also, if someone is in the wrong, if one Christian has sinned against another, this will hopefully move them towards repentance and asking for forgiveness. And for the person who has been wronged against, who has been sinned against, that this would lead them to grant forgiveness as the Lord has forgiven them. It is in the truth of the gospel that conflicts and disagreements can be solved and reconciliation can be made. Unfortunately, uh, this does not always mean that every conflict will be resolved. Uh, we are still sinful people, 
and can get wrapped up in our own desires and wrapped up in our own pride. Uh, we can have differing opinions, like Paul and Barnabas did. Um, another way we can try to bring about a resolution of conflict is with the help of another person. Uh, sometimes you need the help of the church. So Paul calls upon his true companion to help these women. There are times that we can get so wrapped up in our viewpoint, so blinded by our pride and our sin that we need this help to agree in the Lord. We need to be reminded of what is most valuable in life. And depending on the situation, this may require more Christians to to get involved uh, with the conflict in order to help. Uh, Matthew 18 speaks of taking another person with you Uh, If after speaking to someone who has sinned against you, uh, if they don't listen, there's wisdom um, of other other Christians in the church that can be helpful in bringing about reconciliation. When the gospel is the main goal, then there can be agreement in the Lord. If not, it's going to be really impossible to agree. You have to agree on the gospel. And unfortunately, There are also times that reconciliation may not happen and there may need to be uh, some sort of avoidance of the situation. Um, Some scriptural examples, Romans 12, 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You are responsible to be at peace on your end as much as possible. Take responsibility for your end of the conflict. Ask for forgiveness if and where that is necessary. And what the other person does is is not your responsibility. You have your responsibility in the conflict. So ask for forgiveness where necessary. Titus 3, 9-11 says, But avoid foolish quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. There are certain kinds of quarrels that we are to avoid. And a divisive person is to be lovingly and patiently warned, and then you need to move on. 2 Timothy 2, 23 and 24 says, Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. So have nothing to do with foolish and ignorant controversies. What what is this controversy about? Is it foolish? Have nothing to do with that. And leaders in the church are not to be people who are quarrelsome, looking for an argument. Proverbs 26.4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Sometimes if we bite into that, uh, we just bit into that controversy, we continue to answer, this, this foolishness, it, it ends up that we just become as foolish as they are. Um, so in a conflict, 
we have our responsibility to own up to and to take responsibility wherever it is that we are wrong. And this includes asking for forgiveness and granting forgiveness. After this, uh, there's nothing else more that we can do other than pray, uh, potentially getting the church involved depending on, or other Christians involved depending on the situation, uh, praying that a true and meaningful reconciliation can happen as there is an agreement in the Lord. That is where the agreement has to be. It has to be in the gospel. It has to be in what is the highest value in life. And what I hope this helps us to see is that standing in the Lord, standing firm in the truth of the gospel, and in the true purpose and meaning of life, should bring about unity within the church. We need to be constantly reminded of the truth of the gospel and the meaning of life that God has designed us for. It's so easy to drift away, to get wrapped up in our desires and have other things dominate our passions. Standing firm in the Lord moves the church toward unified purpose and unified relationships in Christ. Are you standing firm in the Lord? Are you holding fast to the truth of the gospel? One test to see if you are holding fast to the truth of the gospel is to see if the doctrine that you believe is actually shaping the way that you live. Another test to think about is this. Who are the people that you are unified with? Where there are common values and common beliefs held, there is unity and love. So who, who is it that you are unified with? When it comes to conflict, are you appealing to the highest value in life, the Lord? Or are you appealing to what you want? If at all possible, I entreat you then, agree in the Lord. Remember what Christ has done for you on the cross. Remember the purpose to which God has called you to live. And thankfully, we can have this reconciliation with God in our conflict with him because of the finished work of Christ. That, that Jesus died on the cross for sinners because he, because he loves sinners. He made a way for a conflict with the Lord to be resolved, to have a true reconciliation with God, unity with God, that we might have an eternal, righteous, perfect relationship with the Lord forever. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that you are a God who, even though we were rebelling against you, even though we were at war with you, in conflict with you, that you and your love sent your son Jesus Christ to live among us, to die for us, to rise again from the grave in order that those who would repent and believe may have their sins forgiven and the righteous life of Christ applied to them. And Lord, I ask that you'd help us to be people who agree in the Lord, that you'd help us to guard our hearts from any other uh, things in life that uh, can desire to take your place as the highest 
uh, value, highest importance, highest priority, that we would have Jesus as our highest uh, priority in life. Um, and that from that, uh, that that would impact the way that we live. Uh, that we would hold fast and stand firm as a church as we build each other up in the Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen.